1: Of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy, there is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. All right, welcome back to the Stateside Podcast. I say that... I'm very excited about every guest I have and I don't, I don't not mean it. I'm not lying. I'm pretty stoked, but here's the deal guys. This might be one of the most legendary guests we've ever had. Uh, Larry Crane is on the show today. Record producer, mix engineer, founder of Tape Bot Magazine. Look, if you grew up anywhere around Recording Studio, you've seen Tape Bot Magazine sitting on the coffee table, the lobby of the studio. That's the guy. Uh, he owns Jackpot Recording Studio here in Portland. And we'll get to know him along the way. But welcome
0: to the show, Larry. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Woo. Audience goes Audience wild. Audience goes
1: wild. Oh.
0: You're a fellow Oregonian. Yeah, by default. I ended up here. But yeah. <laughs> Where are you originally from? Uh, Northern California, actually.
1: Oh, okay. I just assumed Larry Crane has always been in Portland.
0: And I've almost been in 30 years. But uh, when I turned 30, I moved from Northern California. I was living in Chico, California, the notorious college town. I uh, moved up here. Um, right after I turned thirty, actually, no so, way, uh, been here a while. And when did you start tape up? Uh, Nineteen ninety six. It was in a house over in Southeast Portland, where I had a recording studio called Laundry Rules, based on some rules that the previous tenants had left written on a wall in the basement. And so I had this basement studio, and uh, and I was learning recording. I, I'd been in bands. I'd I'd already done a lot of recording. I just didn't realize it yet. I had done stuff when i was a kid with cassettes and and cassettes bouncing down to other cassettes and submixing and yeah i had made four records in in this band vomit launch that i was in in the 80s and early 90s and we went to studios for those and i watched and learned from some really great people and which we should probably get into later but um uh yeah because of all that i i knew kind of I was like the guy in the band that made the demos, and I kind of like arranged the songs, and uh, most of the time. And I, you know, when we went to the studio, I might be the only one there at the mixes with a bunch of notes from everybody. Like I was kind of the co-producer guy, you know, in the band. If if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. There's always that guy in the band. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it was like I really kind of got the process of making records and. And it would make sense to me why you wouldn't overdub too much stuff all the time like some people do. Or, you know, like I would think about the arrangement in the studio, you know, as opposed to how we played it live and stuff like that. So I guess I really had a head for it. I just didn't know it until I really just dove in. So are you saying that you
1: went more in the journalistic magazine side of the world? I mean, you're, you're more
0: inclined to being a producer what it sort of, like, which, which came first? You know, that's really hard when people inter- interview me or, or, or I meet someone new even, just outside of any of this uh, music world, you know. And w- when people say, you know, what do you do? I go, I don't know what to tell them. Because right? in one way, I am probably far more famous as an editor and founder of Tape Pop magazine because that reaches, you know, 75,000 people every, every two months. And I've been doing that for 26 years I think it is and uh, something like that, you know, so that really reaches a lot of people, but in my heart, I mean, I'm probably really a bass player in a post-punk band, you know, in my heart, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe I am more, um, I really kind of think more about the creative end and, and, you know, like I do a lot of tracking, mixing, producing and stuff like that still. and And it's hard. It's a weird balance because you can't, you know, I have to stop sometimes and just work on the magazine for a week, you know? (laughs) right it's funny that you say that because
1: that was that's literally my first question for you is what is your identity in all this because i i know you as all of those things right you know and i would agree that's probably the thing you're most known for is tape op but i also know that i mean look i'm gonna i'm gonna read some of the mixes you've done (laughs) you've also mixed elliot smith sleeter kenny the go-betweens the decemberists dandy warhols she and him quasi the list goes on and on like the shins, these are these are not small artists, especially if you're from anywhere in this region, you're gonna be familiar with those those artists. So that's that's a whole separate career that a lot of people know you for outside of Tape op. You know, that's such a gift.
0: That's so cool. Well, I think it's important because I see tape op magazine as really being focused on the art of of recording and making music and not the technical we have to understand and use. But we really don't have to get uh, bogged down in that part. We have to say, you know, in my my sort of if there's there is no um, you know, uh, uh, what would be the manifesto? There's no manifesto of tape art, but there kind of is. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And it it's like use what's in front of you and make art. You know, mm-hmm. and that's really yeah, that's the main thing. You know, don't be careful. Be careful to, to judge things or, or to be careful what you you know how you form opinions about everything. And all these kind of things all lead into that. Sometimes I get, my wife will talk me out of it, but I'll get a little frustrated because I'll feel like, you know, I sidelined a recording and producing career for doing a magazine. But, you know, I think maybe all I got to do is go over and have a beer with Tucker Martin and and see how much he has to work to to maintain a career at that level. And, And then maybe I think, oh, I'll think it's nice i can go i'm looking at my magazine over here on the rack i i can take time out of the studio and do something else for a moment so there's there's a nice thing involved with that oh yeah i think it's a, a beautiful thing and you know tucker
1: is no joke i mean that that's one of the top producers out there by the way did he uh, ever figure out all that gear that was stolen from him What i think whatever, so whatever a, a lot of it that?
0: came back it was
1: yeah, found amazing. God, I, I, when I yeah. saw that, my heart
0: sank. I was like, "Oh my God, no! What a nightmare!" I'll, I'll tell you when I found out that I was—I put extra locks on the studio. And, I bet. And I put cameras in here as well, like just in case we could catch someone coming in and out if we had a break-in. We've never had anything like that happen here, and uh and we also installed some gates on the front entrance now to keep this. Yeah. people from sleeping in that area at night. Um, so, you know, it's pretty, it'd be pretty, pretty difficult uh, to get into here. But uh, yeah, Tucker, uh, that was unfortunate. Yeah. And uh, we've taken everything and I know he has sense to, to stop that sort of uh, profiling and theft, you know.
1: Yeah, it's the worst thing in the world. I, that actually pivots to a question I had down on my list, but we'll just kind of move it yeah. up here. A- as a, a local Portland uh, resonant what is your what is your assessment on the state of portland are you are like it's changed so much even since i've lived here yeah i won't lead you more than that but how how are you feeling about portland these days
0: i mean i first started coming up here to play gigs at Satyricon like in 87 hell yeah and so you know that was gross down there fuck yeah it was man you know no offense to george the owner he he kept that running for decades which is amazing But that area was gross, you know? Yeah.
1: It's always been gross over there.
0: Yeah. And it was, you know, there were points where there were really seriously were needles in the gutter and people sleeping on the sidewalk, you know, right there as you're loading in, you know, and that was just disgusting. And at one point he had to put a sprinkler system over the door. You would have to load in through water, you know, not, not if Portland isn't rainy enough. (laughs) There were sprinklers to keep people from just hanging out on the doorway. Oh, wow. It was crazy. You know, and I thought, man, this is a, and it smelled like the Weinhard's Brewery downtown. And yep. it's a pretty, pretty weird, bleak. I thought it was one of the ugliest, grossest towns I'd ever been to. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved here. But, you know, <laughs> the biggest difference we really probably had, you know, 29 years ago when I moved here, you could live here for cheap. You know, I actually had a client in this morning, we were doing something real quick. I mentioned that another client of mine lives right across the street in some of these new condo apartments. And I asked that client, how much is your rent? And his rent was about as much as my mortgage for an apartment, you know. Right. And my other client here, he was like, yeah, mine's, you know, less than that, but, you know, a $1,000 or something. Right. And I'm like, wow. Totally. I- I moved here and I was like, damn, a room in a basements 250, I don't know, man.
1: <laughs> I remember having a studio apartment downtown in the Goose Hollow area, like cuz I used to work at the Crystal Ballroom and you know, this is like the mid 2000s ish and this studio apartment, you know, albeit it was a hunk of junk apartment, <laughs> but it was it was 520 a month and I remember thinking that was a lot for a studio apartment. There's no
0: way it's that cheap these days
1: anywhere in Portland.
0: No, I don't think so. Unless you had like a friend's deal or something, you know. Right, right. I was able to pull that off before I bought this house. I'd owned a few other houses before and then I was, I'm not going to say houseless, but I didn't have a home that I owned and I got a great, I had a $500 deal for a while here, like, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years ago, that was crazy. But that was through friends, you know. Yeah. Are you out in the east side of Portland? Yeah. I live, uh, the studio is at 50th and division and I live in South Tabor, which is really, you know, I live 20 blocks away. It's amazing. I can walk to work. Just did today.
1: Yeah. I mean, even that area has like just skyrocketed in, in home cost.
0: Yeah. I couldn't buy it now. <laughs> no, that. hell so no. That, that part, you know, obviously that leads into the the whole discussion of like, you know, if we're all like doing music biz careers and artist careers and all these kind of things that It makes it prohibitively expensive, and that really changes the landscape of the town.
1: It does, and for me, it's got to be about, okay, well, if it's going to be expensive, where's the opportunity for people like you and I? Yeah. yeah. And I'm missing those days. A lot of the clubs have closed down, Uh, the live music thing in Portland. It tends to be picking up these days, I will admit, but there was a time there, and not even due to COVID, even prior to COVID, the Crystal Ballroom was booked you know, once a week or something. And now it's like damn every day. Same with the roseland the Wonder Ballroom's crushing it. And there used to be a lot of recording studios in Portland. You're you're one of the ones that has lasted from the
0: 90s till now. A, lo- a lot of those studios are not around anymore. There's a couple that were here before me for sure. There's Falcon and there's uh dead Themas and there is out in Oregon City is Supernatural Sound. Yeah, that's right. That's been around for a while. And Maybe a, Kevin Netlingham's place in Vancouver and Kevin Hahn's studio, which I am blanking out on the name of.
1: But are those all oh from
0: like the nineties? <laughs> yeah, Kevin's studio is like maybe a, a year older than mine. Even oh, okay, uh, yeah, but it was it was in his. I think he's moved into a different place, but it was down uh, Powell here, uh, out in this area. But you know there were there were a few you know that were here uh, when I opened. Gosh, I think actually Kung Fu Bakery opened after I opened, but or uh, right around then, or when I moved here. But they had another. There's another studio before that with a lot of the same people and equipment. And uh, you know there were places, but this is a notoriously difficult business model. <laughs> a <recording> yeah. Studio. <laughs> yeah, you don't. I, say I have to tell you, I, I keep trying to work up an idea of writing a book about it, and, and it has to be called. So you want to open a recording studio and. It'd be almost like a flowchart thing that you kind of follow and make decisions, because a lot of people open recording studios for what I determined to be the incorrect reasons or ambitions or goals. You know. Yeah. So I think I think that's one of the things I would love to be able to more tightly address. I it probably comes up in the magazine a little bit here and there, but it it's not something we don't really go into the business of these things as much as you know, other magazines like Mix and and such have in the past. So, you know, but the thing about it is people open studios and a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot of bad reasons that they open studios. Let's put it that way. You know, one would be, we want a place for our band to record, but then we're going to rent it out on the side just so we can make a little extra money. And that generally ends up becoming something you turn you you decide to go back around no wait we're gonna stop doing that because the demands of a client are are much different than than the demands of say a single band using a space or or such and the other thing that people seem to open it sometimes just because they sort of have this lust for recording equipment and and you can see behind me i mean what you're probably seeing behind me is worth you know nearly hundred fifty thousand dollars just that view of the room you know and I understand that it looks like I have a lust for recording equipment, but these are all just tools to me. And, and you know, if I had to get rid of everything, I wouldn't cry. I could just put something else together. I don't get excited about vintage gear, honestly. I, it just seems like more problems than anything. And, you know, keeping like, you know, three tape decks running is just more annoying than, than beneficial most of the time because they don't get used enough. And, you know, I... I I think so. That gear part of it, it's just it's sometimes people just are so enamored of that they think if I put all this gear in a room, people are going to book it. You know.
1: Oh yeah, that that is such a good point, Larry. I I've yeah. I've heard people discuss this general idea that you're bringing up, but to kind of really narrow in on that is I think insightful for anyone that's looking to to do this or open their own studio. You have to really look inward and ask yourself why you want to be a, a record producer or a mixer, or mastering for that matter. Like it's it is a skill set. You have to learn that skill set, and it's a business with clients. So you're gonna to have to network. You're gonna to have to, you know, do all these things. Yeah, and I I think you're on something. I think a lot of people just want to buy a bunch of gear in a room, and okay, now people are just gonna start knocking on my door. And I mean that wasn't true in the
0: 90s. It was a little bit more true at least, but it's definitely not true now. No, no. I mean the advent of hard-based multi-track recording really changed everything, you know. And that that was That's right.
1: I mean it used to it really used to be a thing where like someone that especially in the 80s and before having a studio with this equipment and the engineering skills was really a it was a barrier to entry. You know, bands had to figure out how to get into a recording studio. And there weren't a lot of people that did it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but these days, I mean, it's a lot more competitive.
0: It, it was very different. It was like you had the gates, the key to the kingdom or whatever, because uh, you had a tape deck, multi track. You know, that Ex- was exactly, yeah. That was a thing. Um, you know, if I think of the difference, like in the early years of Jackpot, I would get gigs recording all kinds of, you know, punk rock and. And, and fake grunge bands and whatever that um, just needed to get a demo cassette ready to give to play George so they could play Satyricon, you know? Yeah, right, right. Um, you know, or just a demo to maybe send around to labels or something. But now people, you know, build... They do a lot of that kind of work on their own totally. these days. Yeah. Um, and so that, that kind of work doesn't exist necessarily in most cases. And, you know, um, as your rates go up, I mean, what... What I charge for working a full day in the studio is over three times higher than when I open the studio Mm -hmm. if I'm the one working, you know. Right. And so as your rates go up, you know, you you lose those kind of jobs as well. And if you're working like as I did at the very beginning for $250 a day, and you're paying the mortgage or paying the rent on the building, and you're you're paying for all your electrical, and you're trying to eat and pay your rent at home, and All that stuff. You're barely getting by, honestly. Yeah. Because you're paying two rents and your commercial rent was always higher than my home rent, you know? Yeah. A room in a house. I get frustrated talking about it with people sometimes because it's like, you know, it's just like being in a band. It's like the bands that want a comfortable life and they want to, you know, have a steady job and also play at a band on the side are not generally the ones that really get anywhere. You know, you've got to do the rice and beans routine and you've got to... You know, put 15 people in a house and find ways to live for really, really cheap, or just, you know, turn your social life off to do this stuff. And that's what I did when I was in a band. And that's what I uh, did, you know, for the first maybe 15 or 20 years of running Jackpot and, and everything, you know. And uh, I pushed myself to the limits of like, you know, credit overload and, and things like doing the first three years of the magazine lost me you know, at that point, probably like 10 or 20 grand, you know, right, that I just kind of flushed down the toilet, you know? So, well, you're, you're talking about committing,
1: you're talking about committing to your craft and to a business. (laughs) And if you, if you want to be an entrepreneur and anyway, look, that's what being in a band is. That's what being a producer is running a magazine. It's all the same. If you want to open a restaurant, like you have to fucking commit, you have to commit. And zero in on your craft, or it's just never going to happen.
0: It, it's really true, and it and it and you know it, it becomes a life commitment. Like I I didn't have kids, you know. I did all these things to kind of make sure that I wouldn't have extra expenses. You know, I've I've driven really old cars, really not vintage cool cars, just old cars. Yeah. You know, most all of my life, as far as I know, and, uh, um, you know, and and just I. You know that I I worked. I've had to, I had to change my life to make all this happen. And when somebody looks at it now, you know I'm almost sixty, and I've I've made it happen. Um, there's still not a, a a massive amount of financial stability mm-hmm. in my life. It's, right. It's fairly okay. Um, you know. But uh, I like I we said earlier. I was lucky. I bought in this neighborhood nearby when I did because now I'd be like another hundred blocks to the east. You know. Right. So, you know, I really um, consider my, a lot of my timing was lucky, you know, and stuff like that. But it also commitment and just, you know, as I've told a lot of friends, I took two really stupid ideas. One was have a, ta- a recording studio tape decks and one was a print magazine. And I took two really stupid ideas that the Internet was going to destroy and, the, and technology was going to destroy, theoretically. And, uh, and I worked really hard at it. And so that that's kind of where I land you know I feel like now I'm a little more comfortable I'm a little safer my dual income stream or you know probably quadruple income stream from different things keeps a little bit of a balance you know as yeah. well so yeah I can I can keep it steady but you know when you look at a studio that isn't around anymore or something it's like it's like, well yeah because it's like there's there's not a huge profit margin on this stuff and and people come in, and they expect things and they ask for things that you, you know, I remember how many years I waited. It kept saying, no, I don't have Pro Tools, you know, because I didn't want to spend $40,000 on something that I knew would be obsolete in a year or two. Right. You know, I just couldn't see that. And that's how studio models used to work is you'd buy an $80,000 tape deck that would be superseded in five years, you know. Right. Especially right. back then. Better one. Oh, yeah. It's nasty.
1: <laughs> well, I want to pivot back to when, when, yeah. So, the early days of tape op, Larry, how did that look? Kind of, kind of paint a picture for the audience. W- were you, I mean, just like anything DIY, it's all you. Were you, from what I remember, were you writing predominantly all of the articles back then
0: and doing all the interviews? Pretty good chunk. I think the first issue was completely me. Yeah. And then a few people came along. Um, some of my old school writers back then. Um, You know, it was always open to that to get others involved, but, you know, you got to self-actuate. And, um, you know, that's, it's really weird. It's it's hard to explain, but like in some ways generating the content is really the easiest part, right? you know, editing it (laughs) and putting it on paper and getting it into a store is, is a much more difficult part. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of to use a a comparison, like writing a song, you know, is pretty easy. It may not have to be a great song, but it's pretty easy to write a song. But to get that song to people's ears, you know, down the line is is difficult. So, you know, yeah, it was the early years. I mean, the first issues were Xeroxed, if you'd seen any of those. Wow. They were, you know, I went to um, actually Planned Parenthood. (laughs) right down the street here my my ex-wife worked there on the weekends and I would go in and use their stuff and then leave like big donation checks yeah and I'd bring my own paper and stuff so I knew I was using up the toner or whatever it is uh in the printers or in the in their copiers but uh I'd leave I'd leave a couple hundred dollars every time I'd go there and and um I uh and then later there's a there's a UPS uh store it used to be a FedEx store I think on Hawthorne and, and 42nd or something, yeah. And yeah. I, I when that first opened, they had a crazy deal like three cents a copy, and I would go in there and I literally would be in the coffee shop copy shop for eight hours. Like I'd show um, up when amazing. they open and amazing. just take over one copier, and I would just sit there. And they were like so mad at me, like we're not making money on you.
1: Because how many you know how many how many uh, subscribers did you have back then? How many readers did you have?
0: Um, it's kind of like the way I approached running a label years ago is it was like give away half of them, you know? So I, I think I just signed up everybody that I knew, like, you know, uh, Gerard Cosloy and Matador and, and, uh, you know, record labels, like, of course, like, uh, um, um, Jesus, like team beat, we were on team beat records in DC and i'd send stuff to discord and I'd yeah. send stuff to i knew calvin at k records i knew the guys at sub pop so i'd send it to all the I labels say, like that, that I, yeah that i knew yeah. and 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 to some of the bands like bands that i'd you know been hanging out with a lot uh like versus or uh um geez i don't know, just tons of them you know the walkabouts up in seattle a bunch of all my friends and other studio friends, you know, so the initially it was just like, you know, make this list and and it's all people that I think will be interested in this. And then I would, I. it was easy to get through Tower uh, magazines back then. Uh, D- Doug Biggert, who ra- ran that department, was a great guy. And uh, and my sister had friends that were working in the warehouse that would say, hey, put this, in, you know, get that in there, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, that was easy and that, would, that could get you to New York and London you know so that's kind of crazy and then there was a good there was a really good zine network in the oh, yeah, yeah, mid mid 90s um, and even like stores like reading like Chloe Udaley's uh, Reading Frenzy downtown by Powell's she was later a city commissioner but she had an amazing zine and comics underground comics store called Reading Frenzy um, and uh, you know there were just there was it, I just had to look at every kind of like underground magazine place and stuff like that and start getting them to those people and and I had friends at, uh, revolver distribution and stuff like that too so because I'd done this for you know I'd done I actually had a zine in eighty six even you know so I I knew kind of the routine of getting it out there you know yeah and just I'd like worked, anything just networking and building relationships yeah and I I even worked at a record distributor when the magazine oh first no what Nail nail distribution here in Portland.
1: So, in in your from from your point of view, what is sort of the role of traditional
0: slash print media today? I think what works for us is it's so niche. You know, it's a certain thing. You know, the magazines, the zines that inspired me were some of them just kind of funny, but they would pick a certain topic, a certain thing. um, You know, like how, how about awful jobs that people hated or uh, there was a magazine called Thrift Score, which was all about going to thrift stores and finding cool stuff. Or um, yeah, oh man, well, there was there was a lot. Uh, Sean Tacharachi in town had a magazine called Crap Hound, which was a brilliant uh, graphic design and commentary, I guess kind of magazine. And uh, those sort of things really inspired me. You know, I, I think when you when you aim your sights, you know, low like that, like you just look, you're looking for. A small audience, then it, it kind of makes sense, you know. They and, and I think the people that that like us that probably want to have records or CDs in their hands and not just streaming, um, or reading you know, things PDFs on a tablet that you want artifacts, yeah. And you want, I mean, I know people save hundreds of copies of these tape-op magazines in their studios. I've got a whole, studios. I got a pile of them, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I think. I think when you find something this niche like that, and has people have sort of a passion about reading it, then that's a it's such a different thing than say Time Magazine, which is like really broad, general, right, timely in news coverage that ends up you know you wouldn't pick up a Time Magazine from ten years ago and go, oh, I'll see what's going on. Like it's a useless magazine except for just historical research, you know, or something. And, and so one of the things I focused on was trying to make it not like, I don't give a fuck whose records are coming out or not coming out. Like sometimes we'll interview someone when nothing's happening in their career Yeah, necessarily. They're not promoting something is what I'm trying to say. You know, the publicist didn't harass me. I just happened to be like, Oh, I can go to Alan Parsons house. Okay. Let's go do it. You know? Hell yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so that there's not, there's not, a, a PR driven, thing to the backbone of of what we're doing and there's not a timely factor i don't want to write about something and then and we've written about things where i look at it now and i go that's embarrassing you know Mm. you know like a a primer guide to digital recording or something (laughs) who cares now that that didn't really help anyone probably and it now it's just garbage, you know?
1: That's so interesting. So so you guys are focusing more on the story of the people that you're interviewing?
0: A lot of times, yeah. I mean, it, within the stories, you learn things. You learn philosophies. You learn yeah. techniques. You learn, you know, you learn tidbits of stuff that just can really shift how you approach recording yourself. You know, I think that's, that's more important than a how-to manual. A how-to manual is the most dull thing in the world. And imagine, I mean... I have friends that wrote book after book about how to use Pro Tools, you know, in the 90s or something. And it's like they'd have to update it every couple of years. and Right. And, and it's just like, you know, you know, how to use Pro Tools? Open it up and just muck around till you figure it out. I mean, or sit down with someone who really knows how to use it. Like, I learned it from John Goodmanson as we recorded Sleater Kinney's uh, One Beat album. Oh, wow. You know. He's like, here's how you make a track. Here's how you arm it. Okay, get to work. You know? <laughs> how long was rendering things back then? I don't remember it being too bad at that point. Okay. You know? Because, yeah, you waited a little, while. Yeah. You waited a little bit yeah, longer I, than most people. I didn't buy Pro Tools to the... Uh, I got a, and I I didn't even buy it. Somebody gave me uh, the Digi001. Yeah, that was the first thing. And it sat in a box for like about a year.
1: So that's like mm, early 2000s, mid-2000s even?
0: I think so, yeah. I actually I still
1: know. have that
0: the interface yeah, the, yeah. the blue the yeah, uh, yeah. yeah weird blue, yellow, whatever whatever
1: uh, by the way, I have it because uh, I'm not a uh, clear I'm not a producer in any way whatsoever. <laughs> producing this podcast is as much audio engineering as I can do that should give you an idea. No, I used to play in a band. Do you know a guy named Nate Abner? He's a Portland guy. He used to play in a band with me. I don't know. He's one of those know. Portland guys. You probably know of him. You yeah. ran into him. Anyway, yeah. he was he was the guy in the band that, like, demoed all of our shit. As the band split up, you know, I, I got this this old uh, piece of gear. And now I'm just holding on to it because it's like
0: an old relic, you know? Oh, yeah. That's funny. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a philosophy I had, too, was at the time that Jackpot opened, everybody had those ADAP machines and DA-88s, uh, taskcams. Uh, so all, there were studios in town. There was one notoriously that used some of these things, these kind of devices and made really, really awful sounding records. And to my ear, like just strangely inconsistent drum sounds and and just all messed up because they were shitty engineers, you know? <laughs> so everyone blamed the ADAP, no, which right. you could say is not the best recording fidelity device out there and not a very reliable device either but there's also been some good records in that form i mean Yo- yola tingos i can hear the heart beating as one is done on an adat and everyone thinks that's like analog tape because it sounds so fucking warm and inviting you know yeah yeah so i mean there's it, it's absolutely not none of this gear is an impediment to making a great record but you know by the way that's that's musician. something i love
1: about you is like the amount of producers and engineers I talk to that like, well, I'll give you an example. A lot of the people that I manage, a lot of the producers I manage, you know, we have a, a constant conversation, a consistent conversation about how to promote themselves, use social media or not, blah, 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 all this kind of shit. And often the, the topic that producers want to post about is about gear, and the fucking plug-in they used on the record. And I, I understand why they're inclined to do that. That's their life. That's their world. But when they do that, they're only talking to other engineers. That's it. They're only talking to other audio dorks. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a place, a time and place for that. But if you're trying to like, you know, broaden your horizons and build your client list, like artists don't really care about that. If you want to like get a rad band to come in your studio, make it rad, make it inviting. T- talk about it. I think that's something that tape op did for you. I, I guess yeah. people need to find their tape op. People need to find that thing that allows them to talk about why they do what they do, not so much the how, but the why.
0: That's and that's that leads back to a lot of that. You know, I mean, I, the thing I was going to say is the reason I didn't use ADATS is, and I started with a tape deck in in nineteen ninety seven or actually earlier in my basement studio too was um the perception of the musician would be they would come in and record they go oh that's so good because it's it's on tape you know not because i recorded real simply and carefully and didn't screw up their sound Interesting. You know, right. The, so it was like a way of sort of almost like advertising, like I'm different, you know. And it wasn't like a pro I mean, initially I was like, I'm not gonna have a computer in here. But once I tried working with computers, I was like, Well, that's a lot better than the DAP machines we're dealing with. <laughs> how you make a how you can make a record is so it's so wide. There's so much stuff that works. But everything, I mean, it is like if I post something like, Oh, here's a here's a really crazy plug in, well that you know, this is really fun. That that isn't the answer to how I made a great record with Quasi. Sure or something. isn't. Sure isn't. It's, you know. That's right. It's not. It's not. In fact, we didn't even have a computer in the room then. But you know, it's those kind of little details are not really, in some cases, all that informative, or, or they don't mean that much. I've got a whole book on like the Beatles recording equipment and their things like that that my friends wrote, and how their sessions ran and all this stuff. And you could go buy all that gear yeah. and people get obsessed about that, but you can't make it sound like the Beatles. No. You know? No. You know? No, you can't.
1: That's right. Because you're not the, you know? the the legendary producer and you're not the Beatles. Like that's yeah. that's that's the,
0: the secret sauce. It's just Yeah, it's just not you know, so I think I think you just when you understand that stuff, then you kinda go, Well, I'll just get stuff that's good that does the job and yeah. And you know, that part's kinda boring. Like engineering is kinda A dead end to a certain degree like you know you can i keep finding things that are interesting can offer up ways of working more efficiently or better uh in the digital realm you know but um it's you know i really felt like i had to stop i had to keep engineering but i had to branch way more into producing and just and just really to you know calling all the shots and stuff as much as i could or co-producing with artists so that i kept my interest in it you know
1: Oh, and also, also, Larry, it's worth mentioning that I think the more that producers focus on producing, like the art of it and making sure your artist is capturing those moments in the best way possible, that's what's going to set you apart. It's what's going to give you a brand. It's what's going to give you legacy. And people are going to want to hire you because you're, you're onto something here. If you just are a good engineer and that's it, well, I got news for you so so is the guitar player in the band they're They're all good at it too now. Every kid's got Pro Tools and a MacBook, and they're getting pretty fucking savvy at documenting their music
0: and the thing that they don't you know that people don't know is the stuff that you know I've run into like a hundred times over the last thirty forty years just i mean just simple things like arrangement things where you're like well why mm-hmm. why are you doing you know?" another guitar that sounds kind of like that on that section why don't we try to get something different or, yeah you know why is this song structured this way or how do you envision this music you know coming together at the very end like i i come in here and i have a vague idea of where it's going to lead before we you know even start putting a mic up right like what i want to get what i think from my conversations and the, with the artist like what we want to get out of this i'm thinking about that i'm not I'm not thinking about getting the best kick drum sound. I'm thinking about getting a kick drum sound that works towards the goal of what we're trying to create. How important is
1: is pre-production to you when you're making a record? Do you focus a lot on pre-pro?
0: I don't. I'm super fucking busy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I really have a hard time. I can't be editing the magazine and doing pre-production and then jumping into a session the next day, you know? So I really kind of don't do a lot. I used to do more. I just try to book a little buffer time so that we can have time to come in. If it's a if it's a really an album project, yeah, you know we'll pass some emails around. And I'll, if I've never heard of a band that I'm recording, I probably did hear them before I booked the session, and I probably went and listened to prior releases and yeah. saw some videos of them live and stuff like that. Yeah, to make sure that I would be interested. Um, and um, you know, it's so a pre-production to me. There have been some cases where people have sketched out demos or done just you know uh, uh, some some practice place demos. Like I worked with a band called Lies We Were Told uh, from in town recently, who were kind of like uh, sort of Joy Divisiony in that kind of vibe. You know, Brad. you know they sent me some roughs and stuff of their demos and things, and we actually built on some of the tracks they already had in the studio. So that was cool because you know they but they really kind of produced what they wanted to do. They they narrowed the songs down and. That stuff, I'm, I'm kind of not. I'm very mostly not interested in producing someone that doesn't kind of have a focused direction. I'm not, you know, if you said Larry, what kind of music do you want to make? It's going to end up sounding like you know, Kraut Rock or or, or Joy Division or or the Rudy Column or Cockto Twins or some, some weird shit from the 80s or 70s yeah. that that you know, that record store clerks like. It's not going to be you know pop music at all (laughs) you know so you know if you ask me to produce you and you have no idea how your song your songs to sound I'm not the person to ask because I'm going to do something that unless you want to do something really out of time and and super different I'm going to be suggesting a lot of other stuff you know and I so I kind of need someone to say i want I'm heading towards this and then i go okay i know how to work like that yeah and, so you and need the elaborate. artist to be
1: prepared and established and have yeah. some
0: focus before
1: they come in yeah
0: yeah because yeah. i've had some bullshit you know meetings with people where they're just like you know some young girl and they're like well we want to just really take her to the top i'm like get me out of here you know i'm not <laughs> i am not that producer <laughs> really I don't think you do think anyone in Portland that's seriously been doing this for a while would even be that kind of producer you know that's just kind of a joke you know go to LA and and spend a whole bunch of money making a demo and and waste your time and money on this stupid prospect you know (laughs) shoot a video whatever your fucking problem is I mean I just don't find any interest in that world I'm not really that interested in the pop music world you know I don't I don't hate it but I just don't care you know well, look, I mean, part, part of a, a band's responsibility is
1: to do their fucking homework yeah. and know who they're going to make a record mm-hmm. with. You know, look, I think it's it's something I see all the time. I, I think you can be too too arrogant as a, as a producer. I think you can be too close-minded and say like, well, Steve Albini makes records this way and if you don't want to do that, go fuck yourself. But there's also, like, there's some responsibility from the artist to... To know okay i'm making a record larry crane like this is why we went to him this is the whole point
0: yeah and i don't want to challenge that from him right you know you know it's like i i'm flexible and i've made a lot of records that don't sound like each other yeah you definitely have there's probably aesthetics and things that i pull into play that maybe are consistent from this to that but i don't sit there and go here's my stamp i don't have any stamp i mean i just have maybe taste things you know you know, so a lot of people. I mean, that's yeah, true. A lot of the jobs I do get as a producer come to me because they're like, "I loved this record and that record," and da da da. You know, and so they they choose me, and then there's something that probably lines up that makes a lot of sense. You know, so that's that's easy to deal with. It's just kind of those bullshit. You know, want to make our kid a star, kind of. <laughs> where I, just don't want, I don't want to be involved. You know, and I've learned. I've learned. i You oh, know, yeah. and I've had people come in and you know where i've literally just kicked people out of the studio and said you know you're wasting your time with me you're wasting your time and money let's just call it this is yeah it's not a good make any sense you know oh i can think of
1: a few of those like hey we want to book some uh phone call time with the artist literally what you said like the parents want to talk to the producer and go it's like nope not gonna happen yeah. you're not paying us nearly enough to do that and even if you were I'd probably still tell you to kick rocks
0: yeah it's just there's 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 too many dreams you know <laughs>
1: that's the thing is that a lot of people also especially with my job I have a very strange niche job there's not a lot of record <laughs> producer right. managers there just isn't and because I do what I do I think some people aren't entirely they don't they're they they think I'm a general artist manager or they just hear music industry guy and they think oh he can make my fucking dreams come true and so they they want to they want to talk about all these other sorts of things that have nothing to do with the the task at hand which is to make a record with one of our producers and it's not that I don't I, I love talking to artists and and shooting the shit with them and you know I I want to give some value and also this is fun I like talking music it is what I do all day but it It is interesting when people, they, they just kind of see, they get starry-eyed and they think, well, I'm making a record so they can make my dreams come true. It's like, that's just not how this goes.
0: You know, tie that in with even like really awesome, you know, local bands or young local bands, whatever they might be, that will come in and record and then go, now what do we do? You know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of like, it's a real reflection back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, when, when when i was in vomit launch we self-released two albums and we went and got a book by diane Rappaport called how to make and sell your own record you know and i read it and studied and i wrote notes and i knew what plating was and and what mastering was and what all the steps were to getting a record done and you know you got to get the record sleeves printed and then shipped over to the place that presses right, them. right right they're gonna slip them together do you want shink, shrink wrap or not you know we had it down, man. We—I we, knew all the stuff that I needed to know. And bands come in here now, and they go, "Okay, we're done recording. What do we do? Do we do we put on band camp? I'm, what do we?" Do? I'm like, "I don't know. You know, that's yeah, that's not my role. Like, that's not my job. It's not
1: my job. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're not paying me barely enough to even be here, let alone do that. Bye." Yeah,
0: but why why are you recording if you don't know what you want to do with it? That just, but, but, you know, if you just want to document, that's fine. That's totally great. Hundred percent understand. That. Yeah. But if you want it to be heard by people, you need to have a game plan. Agreed. Agreed. That part drives me fucking nuts because I'm like.
1: Oh, and yeah. I mean, look, I I also have invested interest, like selfishly. I want these records to do as well as they possibly can Mm -hmm. because if they fall flat, that's not great for our producers. But if they do really well, then we get Grammy noms and things happen for my guys. Uh, One of my clients, Ryan Lewis, just got nominated again for his work with Doja Cat and we're we're over the moon about that you know and i saw that dude, yeah it's, that's and awesome. you know you know ryan right he's from portland or you at least know of
0: him I, I feel like we've met he's worked out of here hasn't he yeah a lot back in the day yeah i thought yeah <laughs> i thought he did back like a while back yeah i thought i'd i thought i'd met i thought i'd met him and i was like i think so yeah, yeah he's he's a he's a um, portland guy but he moved down to la i think six seven years ago No, that's really amazing. That's really good. Yeah, You want to, if you want to have a career, that's also part of the book that I'll never probably get done writing. (laughs) It's like, if you want to have a career in this, there is a point where just making money being in the studio isn't enough. You need to say like, are people really picking up on what I'm working on? You know, are these records being heard? You know?
1: It is such an interesting thing you just said. So many of my friends and even clients, for that matter, are at that point. They're like, Look, I and they should look, you should be proud of yourself for not having to wait tables or pour concrete somewhere, or do some shitty job you don't want to do. I'm not saying that those jobs are shitty. I'm saying for these people, they are. They want to be in music, they want to do what we're doing. And by the way, I even include myself in this category. The fact that I'm making a living paying for this house, working in the music industry full time now, is a I'm very proud of that. I'm turning 40 in July, so it took me a fucking long time to do. Like, this ain't easy. So, I guess what I'm saying is people should be proud if they can support themselves and even make a dollar in the music industry. But at some point, you're on to something. You do this long enough, at some point, you're like, I want to have impact. I I got into this to, to move things and feel and feel those vibrations. Like, if you're not doing that, I think it's just, it's not it's not enough for everyone and a lot of a lot of people are experiencing that right now
0: yeah I mean it's it's a big difference when you sit down like I knew like the first time I recorded Elliot Smith I knew that at least some people were gonna hear this you know and I remember and that became way more and more apparent you know major label contract etc but um you know I remember sitting down I remember Working on the first Slater Kenny record I worked on, All Hands on the Bad One, and and thinking, fuck yeah, a record that like a hundred thousand people are gonna buy, right? yeah right, know? Right, like, right. That's cool. Fuck yeah, that's gonna be heard. They have ardent fans,
1: obviously. Oh yeah, I, I've probably worked, I don't know, up, upwards of ten Slater Kenny shows at the Ballroom, mm-hmm. the Crystal Ballroom. I mean, and there's people there. Yeah, there's fucking people <laughs> there, man, and they're stoked to see him. <laughs> They only get better yeah. live too, and especially after like Portlandia. I mean, <laughs> it's it just kind of made that band even bigger. So it's been it's been oh, interesting sure. to watch. Hey, before we're kind of wrapping this up, you know, we've talked about yeah it a lot, but before we start recording, Larry, you and I. Briefly talked about uh, meeting each other, I believe, for the first time in person down at the NAMM show. Yeah, in early early 2020, right before COVID hit, the world fell apart. And then we said, "All right, let's save it for the show." So I want to revisit this conversation. You you had made a remark that NAMM kind of rubbed you the wrong way, or something to that effect. And and I yeah. think there's a, a theme that we had running through the show was focus on the. The why instead of the how. And I think NAM, like I'm liking NAM because I've only been there twice and I, I'm going for the third time in April. I have a different role there. Obviously, I'm trying to make some connections and, and whatever happened for our guys, um, for our clients. But I know that I. I fully appreciate that there are some oddities, we'll say, about Nam, <laughs> and I'm curious. So, what's your take on Nam and and things like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, because I also do because in the Nam shows, uh, music merchandisers, North American music merchandisers, something, like something that, like that, uh, show, and and basically, ostensibly. It's people showing off their wares at a bunch of booths and trying to get the products into stores and sales and whatever and get publicity for them and all that kind of stuff.
1: Oh, I thought it was just about getting free swag. Oh, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, buttons and (laughs) things, yeah. I have bags of guitar picks and pens and magnets.
0: Oh, yeah. Stickers. They never give you anything good like capos, but anyway. Nothing.
1: Hey, one of my guy, one my assistant won an entire, uh, it's either a preamp or a compressor or some, something to that
0: effect, like a, uh, $2,000 piece of gear. Yeah. Whoa. Anyway. See, anyway. I want that. They won't let me win those things because of my magazine. Yeah, exactly. There's also like Audio Engineering Society AES show that we've done. Yep. And we'll do a table at that and give away magazines and just talk. And that one's better for socializing with our real core client kind of reader base. Yeah, I've never been. I I definitely need to make an appearance. That's a great one. That's a great. To me, that's a more efficient, more focused one. Uh, The NAMM show is just like, I mean, it's like all these wannabe failed rock stars wandering around and a lot of it's just so i'm a very non-masculine music person like i don't see things as competitive i don't see things as as loud as better or things like that uh, on a number of levels and i don't see things as you know kind of like aggressive piercing fast shrill you know like 80s guitar solos hair metal guitar solos i don't really like you know right. don't tell my wife that because she loves motley crew
1: fuck yeah dude i kind of do too
0: secretly they're fun they're great but it's like it's not
1: my thing in all seriousness it's not my thing either but it is fun you know you go to nam
0: show and people are just like you know like, <laughs> like 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 shrill piercing guitar sounds my friend one friend of mine who's who's brilliant we were walking around he goes Nothing here sounds good. God, you're totally right. Everything sounds obnoxious and awful. It's like fast, shrill, loud. Well, especially
1: the instrument booths, you know, like the guitar area. The dude, the drum area, I I audibly started, I was alone in this room and I started laughing out loud by myself. It was like, you know, when you go to Guitar Center, the drum corner, it's just a nightmare. It's a living hell. It was that times a hundred. I couldn't process what I was hearing. It was just so much cymbal testing and snare hitting and and you're right. It's all just like
0: the schlockiest worst players possible. And you, you you'll walk by the cymbal booth and there's a guy like just about to strike like the yeah. loudest cymbal right next to your head, you know, it's like, "Oh man." Yeah, no, it's just I mean, in it, it's a thing that has to happen, I'm sure there needs to be shows like that to to do all this stuff, but But overall, the sensitivity and the beauty of music just seems to get completely lost within this, this squall of like just nasty, shrill, horridness.
1: (laughs) I think one of the reasons I like it. Look, I you know I haven't been doing this as long as some people, Mm -hmm. and certainly not as long as you. Maybe I'm still starry-eyed. You know, I I still get excited when I go to these places, mostly because it makes me feel. Like I'm part of a real industry yeah. on some level. I, I like seeing that there's 10,000 people here at the Anaheim Convention Center. And we're all here because of this thing we do or we're associated with on some level. And I find that exciting. So for me, I, that's what I, I try to focus on that part of it. But I, I will admit, I, I'm also not stuck at a booth all day. I'm you know I'm not trying to actually sell anything I'm just kind of wandering around bumping into people and you know having fun
0: me too at Nam show I don't have a booth so that's kind of a relief uh, and I will run into a lot of my friends and I'll, I'll do interviews off in corners or yeah. back at someone's room next door or whatever. Y- yeah and for for that I, I really do like Nam show yeah. yeah I mean I get stuff done and I don't hate it and I hope it stays around I'm just to me to me there's so much about I love so much music. I love a huge, wide array of music, but there's so much about everything around music that I despise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it makes it really difficult at times. I mean, the way that payola still works, you know, for getting things in front of people's ears and eyes and the way a lot of stuff is promoted and and, and everything having to be, like, you know, busy and in-your-face you know to keep your attention these especially these days you know is is the antithesis of what I why I started putting on headphones and listening to Pink Floyd when I was 16 you know yeah like it's the it's the opposite of that and and so much you know living through the 80s and being really obviously very 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 into music working at radio stations and writing for zines and playing in a band and going to see tons and tons of bands you know I felt like that that a lot of great music was basically being ignored, you know? Right. And I'd still would say that's the truth, you know? So, you know... So, in a way, the, the, like, the... I mean,
1: the internet did a lot of this. The internet gave a lot of people platforms. It broke down a lot of the barriers to entry. But it also kind of ruined it. <laughs> you know, like, just yeah. like everything, you know, we don't really have record stores anymore. There's, there's a few that are selling some vinyl. But Everyday Music... Is like one yeah. of the last ones in Portland. The one in Beaverton closed. You know, all those big like like music stores have closed, and same with bookshops. You know, the the last Barnes and Noble here in the Portland area just shut down, and that there's something sad about that. But well, Powell's Powell's has our back. <laughs> but Powell's has our back for now. God, I hope that sits you know stays around for a while. It will. I think the thing that I learned from people like you is to. You know, with your criticism of how things have changed and some of that magic, you know, putting on your headphones and listening to Pink Floyd mm. in real time and absorbing a full thought, a full record, there's a lot of beauty to that. And we're missing a lot of that today. So I think I like what you've done. You don't just complain, you have an answer to it. You're like, <laughs> check out this traditional print magazine I do about recording. <laughs> like that, that's a good way to fight back and to, to, to yeah. Deliver to that audience, is, and is, it's not about being a luddite at all or any of that bullshit. No, I don't. I don't this. get that impression at all. I, I yeah. think all of your criticisms, I agree with.
0: Um, I mean, it's a just yeah. appreciate yeah. and love music. Like, really take the time to listen to it, right? And 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 dig around. And you know, the way I learned about a lot of artists was learning about one artist and then finding out they're related to other artists somehow, yeah. Yeah. or they're inspired by, and you know, doing. Doing your own research, you know. If you enjoy something, then do some research. If you like films, look up the other films by the same director. You know that kind of thing. And with music, it's the same thing. And and it's like people, you know. I'm I'm like I said, I'm almost sixty. I'm halfway to sixty, right? I have so many friends that are my age or or even younger, and they'll be like, "There's no good music anymore." I never find. You know, I'm like, "You're full of shit." Like, no, there's not tons true. of great music, yeah. but you have to spend the time to, to look around and find it. It's just different. You know, like
1: I, I heard a lot of criticism when um, Kate Bush running up the hill got really big. That song got really, really popular after it was used in Stranger Things, right? And so there's a lot of people going like, oh, the you know, the generation today is just finding out about this song because of the show on Netflix. And I remember thinking that's a good thing. That is amazing that Kate Bush charted in 2022 a song that she did in the fucking 80s because of some show on Netflix. And you have to admit that we grew up... Like I remember, I think it was right around 92 when Terminator 2 came out. Something like that. So I was at that prime age where I was starting to get into rock music and I remember hearing Guns N' Roses on that soundtrack. And I was like, fuck yeah. I got to go find out what this band is and what they're all about. It's all the same, man. It's all the same. It's just different and tiktok is tiktok is both ruining the music industry and helping the music
0: industry spotify I mean, is the same thing all that stuff I mean, all the if, same. You look at, if you look at someone like kate bush who i'm a massive fan of you know number one it's great that a, a woman in her in her mid 60s is getting played on the radio for sure. Agreed. Why are people just discovering her? Because the record labels massively fucked up in the United States and did not promote her enough. That's right. You know, I know she wouldn't tour, and I know that's an issue for some people, but or for some of the the way the business runs, but it's like, give me a break. You know. If they put enough of their fucking money yeah. into getting people on the radio and getting people, people on MTV and all the shit they want to do, they can break anything. They can sell you a wet sandwich. Kate
1: Bush, specific, so many artists vouched for her too back then. You know, like oh, her, yeah. her work with Peter Gabriel
0: and yeah. I mean, it was so she was in in Europe and in the UK. She was so huge from her first record on yeah. as a teenager right. that she you know basically built her own studio, started producing her own records, and. And never had to tour again, you know. So it's like, right. she she had a fine career or has a fine career, and um you know when you look at something like that, that's a super amazing level of quality and commitment to their own vision and stuff like that that an artist has, and you go, wow, that's weird that they you know, she, she she wasn't so such a big name that you know say like Peter Gabriel or someone we'd know them take them for granted this the record labels they decide not to put enough money into it or they they do it in the wrong way so it's like you know that it goes back to the evils and the dirty scumballness of the record industry which is you know basically one of the most you know grossy gross <laughs> one of the most always wrong industries you could ever find you know oh yeah what's that hunter s thompson quote about the music industry <laughs> Yeah, a pit full of shit or something, and dragging each other through—I don't know something. Yeah, it's-
1: right, something to that effect.
0: But he's not wrong.
1: I just think that it's like all the same, and it's always changing. Yeah, personally, this is something I ask people in every uh, episode I do, for the most part. What is your sort of state of the union? It's a big question, but generally of the music industry, are you hopeful for it? Are you pessimistic? Do you think we're headed in a in a direction where? you know artists can do this thing and producers can do this thing and the whole
0: industry is going in the right direction it still keeps working it still keeps working people keep making records and and people keep touring and things are still happening and there's tons of I mean we were laughing the other day my wife and I were like listening to like a bunch of stuff of like music and all these bands kept coming up and it was like Wilco and Spoon and Death Cab for Cutie and 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 all this different stuff. And we were like, oh my God, this is funny because we've met all these people, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) These are all people we know, you know, to some degree more more so than ever, like she and him or something, obviously. But, you know, uh, the Decemberist, you know, there were all these bands and and names and, and it was like, Almost every you know my morning jacket like we you know all these bands of people we've hung out with along the way at some point or like Modest Mouse remember Modest how long Mouse. Modest
1: Mouse was just a Portland band a, a Northwest band and now they're huge when they when they
0: want to tour they do really really fucking well oh yeah Portugal the Man I mean there's so much going on here yeah for sure and it's but it's crazy like so many bands even across the country Colexico and bands like that we're friends with as well and it's like how do we know all of the coolest bands of this you know last 20 years you know because because she was working at the crystal ballroom and i was running a studio in a magazine and we were doing all these things you know yeah it's an interesting time <laughs> with
1: the advent of internet and streaming labels need to figure it out they need to keep adjusting and showing real value to artists instead of just here's a $10,000 check to make a crappy record and we're going to own half of your <laughs> publishing. You, you got to do a little yeah. bit better and be more creative. But, you know, I think um, I, I'm pretty hopeful for it. It's paying my bills and I, I'm seeing a lot of people getting opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have in the traditional industry
0: back in the 80s and 90s. Oh, totally. I think there's a different, there's a different flow that's happening that does really work for some of the great bands. Like Big Thief would be a great example of a slightly newer band where you're like, this doesn't really make a lot of sense on paper that they're as big as they are, you know, but that's great. That's a good sign. It's beautiful.
1: Oh, Larry, I, you know, it's something I talk about probably every episode. So why not do it again? But it's, it's damn near every day that I will hear about a band or even a a film or a podcast or just some entity that I, I didn't know about it before. And you look into it, and you're like, "Oh, this band, Big Thief, for example. I didn't hear about him yesterday, but now I know about him." And there's a whole thing there. There's a whole fan base. They get to tour. They're making money. That's it's a whole thing. And I didn't even know about it. And there's something very beautiful about that.
0: Yeah, it's 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 out there. It's happening, and it's, it's just like your your old friends that go. There's no good music, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like no, you're wrong. And no, it's it's, like, it's the opposite. Y- you dig around and I think despite the music industry, you know, so we don't end on a pessimistic note, uh, despite the music industry, the things like that will work and, and a lot of good music, you know, does bubble up to the surface and get heard. But in many, if not all those cases, the people creating the music have worked much harder than most to make sure that that they kept on track and kept doing it and kept putting it in front of people's, you know, ears and eyes. And doing it the right way and i think that's you know just back to our earlier conversation is like they have to have that commitment you know right and and it's like it's anyone that thinks they can step into the music biz and and get money for something money for nothing so to speak (laughs) yeah you know um you know they're obviously it never has worked that way and even if it does, it's one in a million and it doesn't last,
1: and it doesn't last. Yeah,
0: and that's kind of mostly the stuff that didn't last is things like that. You know, someone being propped up that really couldn't deliver the goods, you know. And uh, I think it's, you know, there's always a new crop of kids going to shows. And, Hell yeah. And everything, you know, it's always interesting to see what things take off and, and can exist at certain levels that seem bigger than you might suspect. Oh, and I, I think we're seeing, like,
1: at least I've noticed there's a lot of post-COVID bands. All these young people who had nothing to do in the middle of the country and they just hunkered down in their basement and now they're coming out. And it's like, holy shit, this is fucking cool, man. I'm pretty excited.
0: I do so much mix work, you know, and and remote mixing for people all over the country. And you know, I totally I've been doing that for decades, you know, so it wasn't something that just started during the pandemic, but I definitely kept busy enough just because everybody was like, Yeah, oh, I'm just gonna start recording stuff at home and I better get someone to fix it up for me. Can't play any shows. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can't play any shows. I've I've mixed so many things albums and and songs for people from all over all over the world you yeah know, in the in the last two and a half years it's nuts that's good to hear yeah a lot of our
1: guys did too i, I remember being quite nervous when like the lockdowns first happened It was like oh god people are going to start asking for their deposits back and bands aren't going to want to travel but you know something uh beautiful happened and a lot of music came our way in a remote way and people were busier than ever oh yeah you know if you're doing good stuff things will, good things will usually happen agreed well yeah. that's a that's a good uh,
0: note to finish on here larry <laughs> boom, boom
1: quote, quote headline
0: <laughs> drop the mic <laughs> i'm not gonna drop this mic this mic cost too much no 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 no, no. <laughs>
1: that's too much that's not a mic you drop thank you for hanging with me this has been super yeah. fun yeah man thank you so much have a good evening and i hope to run into you sometime soon yeah i'll see you out <laughs>